If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. TechCrunch is back in San Francisco for our flagship event, Disrupt SF. We've got a fantastic lineup of startup and tech leaders on tap, like Snapchat's Evan Spiegel, Postmates' Bastian Lehman, Salesforce' Mark Benioff. Plus, you can experience an entire track of how-to content to help you grow your business. Hear from experts at Bumble, Fitbit, Uber, Goldman Sachs, YC, and more. Also, we'll be recording a very special episode of Equity right in the middle of Startup Alley. Get a ticket now and then come enjoy all the goodness. And if you act now, you can save another 20% by using promo code equity. Just visit techcrunch.com slash disrupt SF. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital focused podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief, Alex Wilhelm. How's it going, Alex? It's going very good. We are back here in TechCrunch HQ for the second time in two days, because that's how the news goes in 2019. But this time, we are not alone. We have a friend with us. We have Sean Dempsey, a co-founder and managing director over at Maris Capital. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Excellent. And uh, before the show, we have some deets about what you guys do. Uh, $85 million fund currently is your most recent fund raising another one, and you do uh, Series A and seed size checks. We do. That's e- right. Excellent. Enterprise focus. Enterprise focus. Okay. Why were you in the modern health round then? That was an outlier for us, I'll admit. Okay. Um, we, we, liked, we liked her a lot. Modern health uh, raised an A after that, which hit all of our radar, I think. So interesting round. Uh, and we have a fun fact. Kate, if you want to take that away. Sean likes to run 100-mile marathons, which before we started taping, um, Alex and I were a little skeptical of, but he says they are um, stress-relieving. I find them stress relieving. Yes, a hundred miles. They hurt, but mentally, it's I think I would release. die. In Sean's defense, he did say he likes to run and doesn't do hundreds too often. But I, yeah, you said your bones hurt. That was. Impressive. I said his. I said his bones would hurt. And Alex said that he ran one mile two months ago and is still suffering from it. Uh, my my pride is still wounded by how winded I was at the end of that short jog around a flat neighborhood in the not heat. It was pretty embarrassing. That's where it starts, though. See, you say yeah. that, and then I'm like, I, I can also start on the couch and just not move. You know, yeah. Well. At least you tried. <laughs> that's that's about the best we can say. Um, we're going to start, though, with early stage this week. We are flipping the show upside down. And yes. we are actually going back in time to a company that you used to hate, forgot about, and is now still here. And maybe you still hate it. I think that's the big question on my mind. So I, I wrote a story this week about Bodega. Probably if you listen to this podcast, you were paying attention to the news in 2017 when this company launched. They were... Um, they had essentially created a, a vending machine of the future, an unmanned store, sort of like a miniature Amazon Go. You walk up to the machine, take what you want. Computer vision knows what you're doing. Your credit card's already been authorized, so it's very frictionless and quick. Um, people had a big issue with their name, Bodega. Yeah. They, they claim, you know, it's culturally insensitive given the fact that um, many bodegas around the U.S., particularly in New York, are run by immigrants. And this was a company that was attempting to, uh, you know, bite a big chunk of their market. Um, in one fell swoop with venture capital backing. And if I recall, their their logo was a cat. And exactly. There's a big, uh, there's, uh, I mean, meme in the old sense of it being an idea that, um, you know, bodega cats are super cool and part of this culture. And so I think people view it, viewed it as kind of a, a theft. Uh, and it was one of the most intense negative cycles I've ever seen on Twitter uh, in a single day. Do you remember this launch? I do, yeah. It was quite something. And I think there were a lot of VCs out there that were grateful at the time to not have been investors. But what ended up happening is about 10 months after this 
disaster, disastrous launch, Bodega announced that they had changed their name to Stockwell. So when that happened, I think, for one, not that many people cared. So people didn't really realize. Two, it was less of the company that people were concerned with and more the name. So they changed their name. And in between changing their name, they raised a Series A that either wasn't announced or fell very much under the radar. I missed it. I mean, at a minimum. Yeah. And we pay an inordinate amount of attention to that kind of part of the world. So. Totally. So then I was chatting with someone a couple of weeks ago and they had mentioned this company Stockwell and they were like, yeah, they've just gotten backing from Google Ventures, GV, which I was intrigued by because I had not heard of the company. It turns out that company is Bodega. So I wrote a story this week kind of like going into all the money. They've raised a total of $45 million, what? which is a lot. Yeah. 45 $35 million Series B. How big was their A? Seven and a half. Oh my gosh. And then a seed of two and a half. Wow. So equals, you know, something like 45 million. So today they've got a thousand of these things in apartment lobbies. Uh, I don't know. I think um, college campuses mainly. Yeah, and, that's uh, a perfect market for this sort of thing. Yeah. And I, uh, people seem to be just, I mean, I was expecting a response to the story of like, we still hate this company, but didn't really get any of that. I think there's the old saying, you can't make the same souffle rise twice. Okay, I'm the one who's heard of that one. It's a good one. Uh, and I, I think it's hard to get mad at something when they've uh, shown contrition to a certain degree. I think uh, Hunter Walk was an investor at the time and wrote a blog yeah. post discussing, um, more sober-minded than I would have been able to, I would have been kind of mad about it, uh, the implications of this and, and what was good and what was bad. I don't know. Sean, have you ever seen one of your companies run into a similar like uh, buzzsaw media cycle by accident? Not quite like that. That was somewhat unusual. And most of the stuff, you know, we invest in, it's all enterprise oriented. So yeah. they tend to fly a little below the radar versus uh, consumer companies. Right. So this was consumer. And I think part of why it had to endorse so much of journalists and bloggers and just the general public's wrath. But it does start a conversation at the time. And again, in my story, I wrote about the importance of naming a company. And I think consumer or enterprise names matter. Have you had a company where you were like, your name's terrible. You need to change your name. <laughs> I should have prepared for that question. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that it's happened. I'll have to think for a second about You probably don't was. want to throw them under the bus anyway, but I think it does happen a lot. And I asked some investors about this and it seems like everyone does have a story of like early stage, particularly the where they like, where they encourage the entrepreneurs to rethink it. Because if you have a name that's weird, you know, culturally insensitive, uh, difficult to spell, difficult, difficult to pronounce, you know, there's a number of, of different issues that that can really affect a company. Well, I mean, one of my favorite renames in the history of the world has been Twitter from TWTTR to a word that actually had, you know, an E in it, which was an upgrade. Um, Uber used to be Uber Cab. I mean, these sort mm -hmm. of uh, progressions aren't abnormal, though a complete rebrand away is usually when you want to jettison something and leave it behind. And, you know, here's Bodega trying hard and with some success, a thousand uh, installations is not minor. That's a lot of product, a lot of uh, supply yeah, chains to and keep I mean, up. And raising a Series B led by GV is also not minor. I think they're, that tells you, I mean, it, we, none of us really know what's going on behind the scenes, but it does give me a good sense of how they might be doing. Can we pause on the Google Adventures thing though? Because when I think about corporates, and I think about strategic investments, I think about keeping an eye on what's going on in the market, which might be missing. You know, it's kind of like your, your feet on the ground in a lot of places. What does GV want with, with, sorry, not Bodega, Stockwell? I'm struggling to find the- What do you uh, mean, what do they want? I mean, GV is not your run-of-the-mill CVC. I right, mean, they're independent. They're, they invest Ventures, all over the place. Like, why do you think they invested in StockX? Because that's a marketplace that involves data. I can see that, but, I can see that fitting in, but, but this, like Pringles in a can? In a college campus? Like, I mean, that's pretty far removed from a data-generating marketplace. Maybe I'm thinking too small. Well, GV is independent, so they don't necessarily invest in things that are relevant for Google. They can be, and ideally maybe they are, but 
they have the opportunity to go outside of that. Maybe they're showing off here their their independence. And now Kate is going to bring up the Google Ventures uh, portfolio to make a point. Yeah. So the, I was just thinking I brought up StockX because John Lyman at Google Ventures is the one who invested in um, Bodega. Oh, sorry, Stockwell. He's also an investor in Blavity, which is a um, sort of like a news network targeting African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And then he invested in Toast, which is what, Payments? Uh, it's a restaurant payments service. I yeah. Think. And he then invested, Brandless. He invested in Brandless, um, which we're familiar with. is that company that sells bra- products that are not branded for $3 a piece. They've also not been doing very well. So. They also took a lot of soft bank money if you go back in time. Okay, yeah. so the point here is that I'm thinking too narrowly. The point here is there's a big variety in Google Ventures portfolio. And, and you, you you make a good point that I can't argue with because I actually have no clue why they would invest in Stockwell. Well, but Mr. Lister Lyman thinks they're going to do well. More power to him. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking more in the old-fashioned CVC sense, and that's my they're mistake. Yeah, Google GV is not an old-fashioned CVC, that's for sure. That's should, a, that'd be a great job, though. Anyways, yes, we should, should move, move on. on. Okay. <laughs> okay. So next on the list today, um, before we move on to the late stage, we did want to talk about one more startup. Um, that startup is called Capwing. Do you want Cap- to tell us what that company does? Capwing does meme creation and editing, if I understand the space correctly, which is a fascinating space. If you are not a, a meme consumer, you're probably going to be constantly behind where uh, kind of like digital culture, which is becoming human culture, is. And so to see a company that works in that space uh, raise money and do well. Uh, I think they raised $11 million. Uh, it's not the world's biggest round. This is not, you know, the vision fund style check, but like, it's certainly an investment into a part of the consumable media world, the snackable media world to go back and use an old buzzword, uh, caught my eye. I thought it was interesting. Now, of course you don't, you would invest in something like this because you're an enterprise focused fund. What has kept you right. from investing in consumer? I don't think we feel we have a real edge in consumer. Yeah. We grew up inside Google and Microsoft and looking at the breadth of enterprise software, which for those companies, they want to be everywhere. So it afforded us this opportunity to see everything from the data center to gaming devices, mobile devices, productivity tools, and everything in between. And that is experience that we use every day. But on the pure consumer side, I don't think we've got any special insight in predicting what the next big thing's going to be. Whereas yeah. I think we're a little better at predicting on the enterprise side early on what, where things can accrue. Do you... Sorry, Sorry. please. Do you um, do you think consumer investing is more difficult than enterprise investing? For us, I think it is. I think if you have a certain point of view on consumers and feel your your fingers on the pulse of that market in a way that is better than than the next investor, then I would assume that that that's the place for you. But I think for us, enterprise has been our our legacy and our history and our experience. So. That's why we stay away from consumer. I, I forget who said this, but it may have been the guy who, who founded Justin.tv and then the, which became Twitch and sold to Amazon. He said, you need to accidentally catch a wave in consumer to reach hyperscale and have one of these outsized exits. Whereas in enterprise, you can do a bit more making your own luck through the sales process and intelligent uh, you know, business process creation. Um, so I've always better understood the enterprise side of things. Not as cool, to be clear. Like it's not, you're not going to have a snap in your portfolio or whatever, but um, it, it always seems consumer would be harder because you can't metricize a cultural change the way you can look yeah. at changing patterns in IT buying. And businesses seem like much more reliable customers than consumers do. I think even, even though I feel like I have a better sense of, like, I guess, finger on the pulse of consumer, um, I still feel that enterprise investing is just, such, it seems like such a more safer bet than consumer investing. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, but uh, there's a CRV angle to this. Uh, oh, yeah. I, do you want to, please? I, I just wanted to highlight that this is the Venture Twins. We've talked about the Venture Twins before. These are the twin, these young women that work at CRV, and they, um, they're super interested in Gen Z, and, and they are really smart. And um, it sounds to me like from what Josh Constein wrote in the store on TechCrunch that they sourced this deal for CRV. So I just thought that was cool. 
and apparently they knew the CEO because they worked together at the Stanford Daily. Yep. Which and, is, you know, everyone's, everyone went to Stanford. Everyone but, yeah. Stanford. Except for you and I. We're like the only people. That's true. Did you go to Stanford? I did not. Hey, three of wow. us. Look but did that. you go to Harvard, though? No. Oh, my God. Wow. No MBA, even. Incredible. Huh? You can stay. Oh, shit. <laughs> we like you. Where did you go to school? Claremont McKenna. Oh. oh, I know that one. That's in California. Mm-hmm. Okay, so local-ish, but not one of the bad schools. Okay, we'll take that. That's, that's the totally bad schools. <laughs> All right. Uh, on, on, the, uh, on the company's growth front, um, Capwing has grown from 100,000 users to a million, uh, which is pretty impressive growth, but certainly not uh, large enough scale to become a long-term standalone player. So we'll see if they can keep driving. Seems like a natural M&A target for somebody. Uh, so remember when Snap bought Bitmoji for like a, yeah. a large amount of money? And I thought that was the stupidest thing of all time. And I was entirely wrong. I was going to say that's dumb, but I'm not going to say that because I tend to be incorrect. That's so. true. I wouldn't. Yeah. Let's just leave it at that. Leave it at that. Hey everyone. Don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Uh, Peloton, shall we? Yeah. Where do we begin? Peloton went public today. It did. It today priced, was the day. Yeah. Price last night at uh, $29 a share right at the top of its range. Um, and there were some kind of interesting comments from the CEO this morning saying that the company had probably left a little bit of money on the table. They were, quote, not greedy, if I recall the, uh, the context. And then, notably, the company opened down and wrapped the day down, I think it was 11%. Mm-hmm. So they wrapped the day down at about 2570, 2580 per share. Um, and, you know, he said we, didn't, we may have left money on the table, sort of meaning they could have charged more for their stock. And right. they ended up charging top of range. I think we've seen a lot of the IPOs this year actually price outside their range, which kind of makes you question why they even set the range how, or how they made the decision to set that range in the first place. But we saw Peloton actually price within at the top of their range, which is interesting. It, it was interesting. Um, it felt rich to my blood. It was roughly a 2X in their last private. And uh, they got whacked similarly to how I think Smile Direct Club struggled. Another uh, strong pricing from an IPO, a strong valuation jump from their last private valuation, but a company that had a high increase in sales and marketing spend into their IPO cycle and uh, had, I believe, rising net losses uh, accompanying their growth, which seems to be losing favor in the public markets. Do you have a Peloton? I don't. I know a lot of people who do and, and love it, but I don't. I don't have one either. Guys, you don't have one either. You, you told me I was not allowed to bring up Pelotons on the show because I always said I wanted to buy one and never did, and so you banned me. I forgot that I said that, which is funny because I also do the same thing, though, because I want one also. I mean, I mean, I, I mean. Hey, hey, maybe they'll send us a free one like Magic Spoon sent us cereal. Don't encourage that. <laughs> All right. Context. A few weeks ago, we talked about some high protein cereal and Kate said, send us some. And I said, don't do that. And of course they listened to her and not me. And so we now have two boxes of next week. There's going to be two Pelotons waiting for us right in this room. So there's ethics problems with that. Please don't do that. All right. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. To all the listeners that think that I'm being unethical. Sorry. Kate is ethical and funny (laughs) and is an enjoyable person. Well, it's too bad that none of us have one because I have heard amazing things about them. People love them, especially venture capitalists. They all love them. So figured Um, you might have one, but you know. I run, remember? Yeah, I right. mean... Well, they, you could have the Peloton <laughs> tread. I could. Yeah. yeah. I mean... It would just sit there, though. Fair but enough. context, our lovely guest said before the show, he likes to run on trails. So I feel like that's, you know, going to be where you find your, your zen. Um, but the broader context here is that, you know, in the, the wake of the WeWork carnage and the relatively negative cycle that that has engendered uh, for unicorns writ large, we saw unicorn price very strongly. I thought it was a bullish sign. And then this pushes back against that. So I don't actually feel like I have a good idea of where public market sentiment is regarding unicorns right now, except for the obvious plays like Cloudflare, which is very much more in your enterprise domain, uh, which priced above range by a dollar a share, but was a, a very grokkable business 
You could see its growth. You could figure out where its retention was and so forth. Um, I wonder if just higher risk consumer stuff is is losing some favor in an era when risk is feeling less, um, I don't know, attractive, lack of a better term. That's that's where my head is. What are, what are your yeah. thoughts on Wall Street sentiment? Well, it could be a case that people are getting increasingly afraid of all the losses these companies have, you know, going into being a public company. I think with Peloton, it was a great story, venture story, where they famously had trouble raising the first round of capital. So I think it's been awesome to see that. And yeah. they've proved just about everybody wrong along the way. But I think there are questions about, for them, not only the investments they've made in sales and marketing, but what does that churn rate really look like? I don't think anyone quite believes that 8% annual is necessarily where it's going to be in six months. So I think a lot of people are waiting to see that. I, I was actually surprised that it, that it did trade down. I thought there would still be a pop given just the awareness Same. of the business and, and people who have it love it. So I was surprised to see yeah. that, even though I think longer term, I, I wouldn't be a buyer at these prices. I think they're going to have to innovate and come out with a lot of products. The history of I think home exercise is kind of moving from fad to fad and I'm sure they're thinking about the next lineup of things they'll come out with, but I think they have to do that to stay relevant in this space. Right. I mean, they don't have that many products, right? They have got the um, bike, they've got the treadmill, they have some yoga thing. But I mean, I, said, I think the future of Peloton is not the hardware, it's, it's the fitness content. I'm not opposed to that. It's definitely a higher margin, I think, long term and certainly easier because it's a lower price point to drive customers into it. Um, I, I would be more in the market for that than a Peloton because I would love to have more like body weight focused at home exercise material, um, but I don't really bike that much. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just curious about where the next crop of unicorns are going to land. Because one thing we don't talk about enough on the show is a lot of these companies that have gone from A through series like Q have so much capital riding on them, so many sequential bets that if, you know, the IPO window closes, slows down or, or devalues a lot of these firms, there'll be a lot of pain. And we have not seen more than what, 10% of the global unicorn kind of population exit. There is still hundreds of unicorns out there, not to mention companies that have only gone to like series C, series D, whatever, um, that need an exit. And I, we're not going to get even most of the way through them before something bad happens. And that's right. And they're burning cash so much. They need money bad. And that's why we're seeing WeWork, which I think is the next thing or no, that's the, toward the end of the show. We're going to talk about WeWork again, but WeWork is in desperate need of capital. They're going to run out of money and they, and I'm spoiling to what we're going to talk about, but <laughs> WeWork needs money. And so do these other unicorns. And the point is like, they've got it. They've got to get it somehow. Uh, I agree with that. But before we move on, can we talk about um, share structures really quick? Dual class? Yeah, dual class. Because sure. there was, there's more on that topic today. So, so Peloton has a dual or maybe even triple share structure with more votes for certain classes of shares. Uh, and I think that's become relatively popular in the last five, 10 years. And the, uh, the CEO was on, was it C, uh, CNBC, I think? And he said, you know, we had to do this because we had to give ourselves more votes because otherwise leadership wouldn't have any control. Uh, because they had to raise a lot of money and that had diluted them down. I, it just struck me as slightly hubristic to say like, well, we had to sell a bunch of the companies. We didn't own that much. So we just had to give ourselves extra votes to let ourselves have more control. Like, I don't know, you sold shares and then you just didn't give them, it feels very anti-democratic to me and somehow anti-capitalist. Um, do you see companies at like the earlier stages pursuing these dual class structures or do these mostly come up in later stages of a company's formation and development? I haven't seen it with any of our companies at this point, certainly not at the early stage. Okay. So I do think it's something once you're on that path to IPO, you start to think about that, you start to think about the control you're, you're going to have or not. There's more and more activist investing in the public markets, even in tech. So I think people are thinking about that. Uh, but at the earliest stages, we haven't, we haven't seen much of that at all. 
Yeah, I think so I saw in my conversation this morning with the Peloton president, he mentioned, um, so he worked, he was a CEO of Barnes and Noble. And I think he'd also been uh, in high level positions at other um, public companies. And he said, in his experience running public companies, uh, you know, there's the fear of activist investors coming in and making these very um, big decisions uh, because of some short term outcome versus like, of course, if they have more control, he, you know, this guy said they can be more concerned with the long term, which is what they all would say. But well, I yeah, mean, everyone claims they're focused on the long term, right. but if which I, is why they want more control because they think that they have more of a focus on long term versus other people might come in, be focused on what's happening next week or next month or even next year where they they're thinking 10 years down the line. So that's that's why they want it. I mean, I understand. We talk about this every week. I think like I agree with you. I, I also I, I also think it's anti-democrat or whatever you said, anti-capitalist. I struggle to to give people points for long-term thinking when they spike their S&M spending ahead of an IPO to artificially increase their revenue growth rate to appear more attractive in the short term. That makes me slightly irked. Burn. I mean, it's like talking on a bill side of your mouth. Anyways, um, let's let's riff a little bit on something out of the ordinary. So today we are going to talk about media, which is something that we don't do nearly ever. Um, but if you are a fancy person, you read New York Magazine. Um, I love New York Magazine. I know. I was trying to make fun of you gently. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> York- I love the cut. So if anyone else is listening and loves the cut, shout out to you because the, the cut, cut is, is awesome. What is the cut? The Cut is just one of their um, verticals, and it writes about, I don't know, it's like cult- cultural criticism, pop culture, entertainment, media, uh, literature. It's just kind of like a little hosh-posh of things that I like, so I love it. It's, it's The writing is phenomenal, in my opinion. Um, I, re- I read The Cut, too. And I love Vulture so much. Those are two of my favorite things to read online. And what's Vulture? Vulture is um, entertainment, so it's like movie, TV reviews, and actors, this and that, news within that that um, space. So this is where I go for non-tech things. And this all fits underneath the New York Magazine umbrella. Those are all part of their verticals. Why are we talking about this? So New York Magazine is merged with Vox. I mean, it kind of seems to me like Vox essentially acquired New York Magazine. That's exactly what I think happened. Vox is worth what? Uh, A lot. I'm pulling that up right now. Vox Um, lost raised a Series F in uh, 2015, a $200 million round at an $800 million pre. So actually, uh, amazingly enough, Vox is a unicorn. I didn't know that. Well, not quite. No, 800 plus 200 is 1,000. Oh, oh, okay. I thought you said post-money 800 million. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, pre-money 800. Um, I misspoke. And New York Magazine was said to be worth like 100 million. So definitely so. an acquisition. This was not yeah, a, a merger yeah. of the- But place. whatever, whatever it was. Um, it's a cool deal, I think, because the companies, both sides of these um, outlets claimed that they were being really proactive about what was going to happen. They were predicting the future. They're like, if we team up, we can really make it versus having to wait until we are desperate for some sort of deal to rescue us from our, you know, whatever it may be. Okay, I want to talk about this for a different reason. If you look at a lot of the incumbent media companies, they are branching out into software. Uh, Washington Post is working on software. Axios, which is kind of a new incumbent, is selling their email tool as software. Uh, we're seeing Vox sell Chorus, I believe, which is their their CMS as software. So we're seeing not just more M&A from these larger uh, media platforms, plastishers, whatever the phrase is, but they're adding other types of revenue to the mix, which I think is very intelligent. Um, and I think it gives me hope for the longevity in a recession because I presume that a lot of these positive subscription metrics they've seen lift from uh, will decline. And so having, I don't know, other maybe more resolute, more stout uh, revenue streams. And higher margin. Which leads to better multiples. Right. Which, because everyone wants to be a software company. It's, it's the best thing. Anyways, I, I think it's cool. I'm excited about this. And also it means that uh, The Cut and Vulture, let alone things like Intelligencer and Grub Street, as I can read notes, um, won't die. Which is good. We've seen a lot of carnage lately. So. Yeah, I think I think this. Um, the bottom line here is that Vox has been doing a really excellent job in innovating and staying on top of things um, in a field that 
companies are dying in right and left all the time. And I think, um, you know, through the launch of their podcasts um, by folding in Recode, which, you know, um, popular blog for tech news, doing things like that. I think um, they're staying ahead of the curve and they're protecting themselves from whatever may happen in the field of digital media, like which is just not not an easy place to be. I mean, we, we both work obviously in digital media, but it's, yeah. it's, it's uncertain. I and mean, none of us know what's coming next ever. Tenuous. I think it's a perfectly fine word for working digital media. It's the best job I've ever had. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade this for anything else. I mean, else. is it the only jobs you've had, right? No, I've worked like, you know, construction and I've done some well, farming and. Haven't you, didn't you start writing a tech crunch when you were like 16? No, <laughs> that's generous. Uh, it's the only job <laughs> I've had since my second year of college, I guess, okay, but I, yeah. I have done. Your career has been in digital media. My adult career. Yes. yes. As has mine. I mean, like, I see other people working at their jobs. It looks terrible. No, our jobs are awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll cut that out of the show because that was, <laughs> that was not necessary. No, don't cut it. No uh, cuts. No. Anyways, moving on. Uh, we are, we're going to wrap up this week with, with WeWork one more time. Not because we're obsessed, but because they keep doing things. This is not our fault. You can blame them. Um, Kate, do you want to give us the, the, the Cliff's notes on this really quick? Yeah. I mean, there are two big things, so I'll leave one of them for you. But uh, WeWork is... Um, going to sell three really large assets. Um, there's some acquisitions that were made under Adam Newman that WeWork has immediately decided upon ousting him. They are going to sort of retroactively. Get rid of. Yeah. I'm, so yeah. Um, one of those is managed by Q, mm -hmm. which is a company that they acquired in the last year. That was very recently. And Conductor is another one, right? Um, yeah. And what was the third? I forget. But so the point I. is they are divesting their software Yes. Yes. And they are also selling off a $60 million private jet that Adam Newman had acquired and apparently upset many employees by doing, which I understand. Um, you know, at some point recently, they are going to sell that. So that's, I think, one piece of the big news of this week following, you know, guys, if you didn't listen, we did a, do an episode about this yesterday. So we have a whole episode dedicated to the WeWork news. That's why we're not going to go into it um, again. Yes. But um, you're welcome. The, that's what happened in the last 24 hours. And there's one other big piece of news I'll let you hit. Yeah. So the best is I can make, make out um, SoftBank can't walk away from this, this deal uh, because they have put too much of their own capital to play. Uh, if you're a poker player, it's called being pot committed. Um, it's when you just keep calling when you shouldn't. Um, but in this case, they're going to put more money to work. Uh, rumors that another billion dollars, according to the FT earlier today. And, you know, you throw in a bunch of asset sales, you cut a lot of costs, you do a bunch of layoffs. You stop growing as fast and maybe the numbers begin to make more sense, I guess is the guess here. And then you shoot for an IPO. We were joking, I don't know, Q2 2020, somewhere in there when you can show some lift and um, we'll mm -hmm. see. What it's, do you think is going to happen? I think the IPO will be a ways out. I think yeah. there's going to be a lot of restructuring they're going to have to go through over the next, I don't know, at least six months is my okay. guess. Yeah, so that would be earliest Q1 or Q2, but su summer of next year at the earliest. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be like, pandemic layoffs at WeWork or do you think it'll be more targeted to like uh, groups that are no longer, I've never seen a company actually disintegrate before. I'm, I'm sure you have at some point in time. What, what's going to happen? Yeah. I, watching this has been incredible. I mean, the speed of it, you guys have talked about it a lot, mm -hmm. but it's been unprecedented as far as I can remember. And I'll say as a comment, I feel like as someone who believes in the rationality of public markets, I guess it's been helpful to have this happen. <laughs> Not that I wish, don't wish well on people involved in the company, but it, if this company was trading at $60 billion today, I would question the rationality of, of comparable market comparables and discounted cash flow models. And I think you throw everything out the window and say, I guess it's a momentum game these days. So in some ways it's been helpful to say, okay, people aren't going to put up with this kind of stuff. 
But what happens next? Yeah, I think it's going to be a good six months. There'll be layoffs. I don't know enough about the different groups. Clearly, the I think everyone questioned a lot of the M&A that they did and what the strategic relevance was for their business. So to see those go first is not really a surprise. How deep it goes. I don't know how bad the cash flow situation is, but. Oh, well. And SoftBank will help with that. Um, I do know those numbers, actually. I do. I'm a, okay. Yeah. So uh, in H1 19th, first half of this year, their uh, operating cash burn was negative 198 million plus or minus a million. And their investing cash burn was 2.36 or 2.35, negative 2.35 billion dollars. So they were negative 2.55 billion across operating and investing cash flow in six months, which is $14 million a day. Um, I just want to say that Alex knew that by heart and was not looking at his notes. I wrote that story this morning. So I just have I, the, Impressive. I, a couple hours ago. Also, we can't talk about WeWork M&A without mentioning the wave pool business, please. That was uh, what I thought we would see first. I was actually surprised it wasn't on the what list. What the hell is going on <laughs> with that? No one ever talks about it. I, I know I brought it up before, but like, why doesn't anyone talk about that more? WeWork acquired a wave. No, sorry. Acquired the, a ma- majority stake. Minority stake. That's what I wasn't sure. WeWork on. acquired a large stake in a wave pool business like two years ago and no one talks about it. Dude, I, I'll tell you what. I know we're probably a little short on time, but like if I bought a wave pool company or a majority stake or even a minority stake in a wave pool company with soft bank money, I too would think that I could buy a G650 for sure. Um, because I would think that I could get away with anything. All right. One last thing. I, we weren't supposed to talk about WeWork, but now we're here. I read the Vanity Fair piece, uh, which was almost a companion piece to the, the journal piece from Elliot. That was fantastic. Kind of going oh, over I haven't read that one yet. Okay. It's good. The, the Vanity Fair one. Um, I've shown up hungover to meetings before. In my youth, I have since matured, but I, I understand what that feels like to hear about Adam showing up hungover to like board meetings. That takes real guts. You have to not care so much to show up to critical business meetings in poor shape. I mean, go back to the voting control thing about who should have control in certain cases, letting one person be king uh, isn't great. And, you know, this country was founded on the idea of democracy, and uh, I think it's a good idea overall. And I'll leave it there. All right. Let's, let's leave it at that then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for coming in. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have, uh, for having have me. us. All right. See you guys next week. Bye. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week. Sorry, I thought you were going on a, like doing a little uh, speech there. No, so no, I, I realized like, I was speaking. So I was like, I need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> it sounded like the beginning of a speech. So I was like, I better let him. No, no, you say need it. democracy in four yeah. <laughs> That's what it seemed like. America is founded when, on democracy. When I can hear my own voice, which I can in the headphones, it feels good to talk. It's a problem. <laughs> <laughs>